Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and you are watching or listening to the Multipolarista podcast. I am joined by a great friend of the show, a, one of my favorite journalists across the pond in Britain, and his name is Asa Win Stanley. I've done many interviews with him over the years. He, you probably know if you, you know his work, he is an investigative journalist, and he's also an associate editor at the Electronic Intifada. You should check out the interview I did with Ali Abunima, who founded and edits Electronic Intifada. Great team over there doing some of the most important reporting on Palestine. And Asa also has a really good Substack that everyone should check out called Palestine is Still the Issue. And of course, as the name suggests, he does a lot of reporting there on Palestine. But what I like about his Substack is he does reporting on other issues that are all related to imperialism and, you know, of course, Palestine, the struggle for Palestinian liberation is a key struggle against imperialism. So today I have on Asa to talk about a series that he's been publishing at his Substack about Operation Gladio. That is the NATO stay behind networks in Europe. And that is how in the first Cold War, NATO supported a bunch of former Nazis and fascists to wage a war against the Soviet Union but really, it was also a war internally against socialism. And today we're going to talk about what Operation Gladio is. This is not that well known, even though there are so many documents that have been released proving definitively that, that after World War II, NATO, the CIA, and European intelligence agencies created a series of secret armies that not only were preparing for a potential hot war with the Soviet Union, but also kind of internally acted as secret police. And they were implicated in terrorist attacks that killed hundreds of people across Western Europe, and were also implicated in killing, spying on, and uh, torturing and kidnapping leftists. And then, of course, carrying out these terrorist attacks that were blamed on leftists. So, Asa, thanks for joining me today. I, I just want to start um, before we get into the nitty gritty of some of these articles you've written here, I'll, I'll get up a few examples of your articles on uh, Operation Gladio. One is called NATO's Secret Nazi Armies, How the CIA and MI6 Created Operation Gladio, a Cold War Terror Network Riddled with Nazis. So that, that's one of his articles over at his Substack. Here's another really good one. And we'll talk about each of these later today how the CIA oversaw Belgium's secret Nazi army. We knew we were protected. NATO's terrorist army recruited fascists and targeted ordinary civilians to strike fear into the heart of the populace and abort radical political change. And you have others. So th that gives people an idea of what these articles were. But before we, we talk about that in detail, can you just talk about why you think it was important in this moment with the war in Ukraine with NATO once again arming Nazis in Ukraine, which is an objective fact. It's not Russian propaganda. I mean, can you talk about why it's so important, you think, to, to learn this history today in 2022 of Operation Gladio and what inspired you to write this series? Well, there's a variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, thanks for the generous introduction, Ben. You are also one of my favorite journalists from across the pond. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I think this 
Gladio series for my Substack. I've been working on it for about a year, really. I mean, it, I was. It started off as a really long article. <laughs> I mean, uh, a lot of us have investigative journalists have a habit of writing really long articles, and uh, yeah, I, I eventually decided to break it up. Um, and I, it's better for it, and I sort of expanded it, and it's. I've done three articles in this series so far, plus a companion piece with a um, YouTube embed of a, a, a documentary about Gladia, which maybe we can talk about a little, little later. Um, but, I mean, I think what inspired me to write it is just the... It's an extraordinary part of history that is really not very well known i mean I, I think that those kind of stories always appeal to me as a journalist is trying to expose secrets i suppose and try to expose bring things to wider attention um i didn't obviously i didn't first write about this story i didn't expose the story in the first place it first came out um in a major way in 1990 um and i, I but i think what really got me to pull the trigger to publish as it were um, when was it? The first one came out last month. Um, was the the war in Ukraine, and I think that really, um, it you know, researching Ukrainian Nazis really led me. I think it was one of the major factors which led me to read more about Gladio because there was something that's kind of been in the back of my mind for a long time that it was something I was dimly aware of that I knew sort of existed, but not the details of it. And I set about reading about it and um, watching the documentary about it and um, just learning as much as I could about it, really. And the more I learned, the more astonished I was. So in, in 2018, like some of your, I'm sure a lot of your viewers and listeners will know that um, we I did a story for the, a long story for the Electronic Intifada in 2018, about the Azov Battalion um, and building on some of the work that uh, had been done at um, Grey Zone by uh, by Max Blumenthal and by others about the Azov Battalion and how, you know, they're, they're this, this a blatantly Nazi armed group in Ukraine, um, which after the coup in 2014, um, you know, was integrated into the Ukrainian armed forces. So you've got a, a Nazi force at the heart of a modern European state. And um, as I was writing, I, the more I researched about it, the more, um, you know, I wasn't fully surprised, but it it, it, it led me to think, well, I, this is like what happened in Europe after the Second World War, you know, with the strategy of tension Gladio and all that kind of stuff. And I, it was like something that I needed to learn more about. So I just decided to um, to start writing about it. I thought it would be a good topic for my Substack, which I started just over a year ago, um, to kind of, like you said, like I, I'm, I, the reason I called the Substack Palestine is still the issue is because I want to cover a whole range of issues, but I'm always going to return to Palestine and try and try and relate Palestine to the world. And to try and show the commonality that the Palestinian struggle for freedom has with liberation struggles around the world, that it's not, it's not different. It's not fundamentally different in a lot of ways. Yes, of course, every country is unique and Palestine has unique features, but Israel is a settler colonial project, which, which has a lot of similarities with other settler colonial projects 
like including ones that have been defeated, like Algeria and uh, South Africa, partially defeated in South Africa, you could say. Um, but um, yeah, so I mean, I I I I'm trying to uh, for the Substack, I was trying to write about different things, so. Gladio seemed particularly important to publish about at this time because it was this was a project that you described which was done under the auspices of NATO and we've seen a lot of we've seen NATO come up a lot in headlines in in this year you know in recent months especially since the uh Russian invasion um or Russian special operation as the Russians themselves claim it to be um in ukraine and you know there's been a great deal of um there's been a lot of headlines about nato and we've seen these kind of pseudo leftists like paul mason in britain who are just outright fans of nato and they're talking about how and even some people who i think you know are not as bad as paul mason or generally thought were you know decent kind of social democrats who maybe i didn't necessarily agree with everything but i thought they were basically decent people someone like diane diane abbott you know um a labor one of the most left-wing mps in the labor party alongside jeremy corbyn she, even she called nato a defensive alliance and it's never been a defensive alliance if you look at the history of nato it's always been an anti-russian um alliance and it still is that you know and at, at the dawn of the cold war Operation Gladio was a major component of that, and it, it, it predated NATO even. Yeah, and I think we have to understand the history of the founding of NATO in terms of understanding the U.S.-led Western strategy after World War II, which was essentially to absorb the infrastructure of the Third Reich. I mean, I've the more I've studied history, the more I've come to realize that the U.S. and Britain didn't really defeat Nazi Germany it was the Soviet Union that defeated Nazi Germany, and then the West absorbed Nazi Germany. So not only through Operation Gladio, which we'll talk about in a second, this, Operation Gladio is the Italian code name for a larger network involving 15 European countries, including, by the way, Switzerland and Austria, which claim to be neutral. But we always have known that their claims of neutrality are bogus. But yeah. This stay behind network created by NATO, including rehabilitating former Nazis and fascists. But that was not the only operation. We also have Operation Paperclip, in which the CIA recruits former Nazi scientists and intelligence officers and basically populates Western governments and the US government, these agencies, with former Nazi technocrats. And mm. the, the most classic example of this is Reinhard Galen. Reinhard Galen was the head of Nazi intelligence on the Eastern Front. That is, for the Nazi war machine, this guy was the head spy overseeing anti-Soviet intelligence operations. He was one of the most important Nazi spies. And the CIA recruited him. Reinhard Galen then created the West German, capitalist West German intelligence agency, which is still Germany's intelligence agency today. And he worked for the CIA. And many of these Nazis—it's it's it's an astonishing story, you know. If it, it, it sounds, I found it hard writing about Gladio because you sound bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, you, but you couldn't make it up, you know. The truth really is stranger than fiction in this case, and the it, it, same in the case of the Galen, the the, the Galen organization. You know, 
a major Nazi war criminal um, was protected. And, it, and like you said, it was only one of many examples and it, it was recruited. Well, and, and I think it's important to understand that these figures were helping to run Western intelligence agencies throughout the first Cold War, right up until the 1980s. I mean, yeah. many of these figures, they died in like the 80s and the Reagan era or a little earlier, but there were some up into the 80s and 90s. So this, this is not just you know, ancient history. We're talking about how after World War II, the CIA, MI6, other Western intelligence agencies were directly affected, directly impacted by Nazis. They, they yeah. recruited Nazis who helped to understand the whole logic of the first Cold War. This idea that the Soviet Union was some great threat, that it was days away from invading the Soviet Union. And in reality, we now have so many documents showing that even many figures in the Pentagon and the RAND Corporation, intelligence agencies, they knew a lot of these threats were exaggerated. So, for instance, we have the Pentagon Papers and we have this really important book that was published by Daniel Ellsberg called The Doomsday Machine. And he goes through and he, I mean, The Doomsday Machine, really, in short, it's about the, the U.S. nuclear policy toward the Soviet Union and how the U.S., intelligence agencies in RAND, where he worked, which is an arm of the Pentagon, basically, an outsourced arm, they always knew that the Soviet Union, uh, uh, its military policy was defensive. It was not offensive. Mm. And it was always the U.S. policy that was offensive against the Soviet Union. But you have all these former Nazis who come to the West who are recruited also by Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice of America. So they're also filling out the propaganda networks and media outlets. And they keep pushing this narrative that any day now the Soviet Union could invade Italy, could invade France, which is obviously cartoonishly ridiculous. And it's not in any way hyperbolic to say that the whole narrative of the first Cold War, of this communist threat of the Soviet Union, that was a narrative created by Nazis in large part. Yeah. Yeah. And it was... Um... It was even more hypocritical that that false narrative because um, what the Western intelligence agencies were really afraid of was the communist parties in Western Europe coming to power through democratic means. Um, you know, this is a point I've made in the articles, um, which you know it's it's important to remind readers in Britain and America. Communist parties in the, the official Communist Party in Britain and America, you know, they, they did have successes, um, you know, and even there was, uh, I think, maybe one M. I think there was one communist MP in Britain. I think I'm right about that at some point. Um, but they, they did. So they did have successes. I, I know the uh, before the McCarthyist era, the, the Communist Party of the USA was um, incredibly popular in terms of its membership before, you know, this Red Scare era. Um, but the communist parties in, in France, Belgium and Italy especially were much, like they were practically mainstream. Like they came very, very close to government. Um, you know, they would habitually poll 20, 30%. Um, the... and, and, Asa, and that's largely because they were popular because they led the resistance against fascism, right? Exactly. Exactly. The communist parties in Western Europe were, in large part, they were the partisans, you know, they they were the people who were fighting 
fighting the Nazis. They were the people who were fighting Mussolini. Um, you know, they 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 were the people who, who killed Mussolini. You know, they they, they the Americans um, came along later. So and and actually, as part of Operation Gladio, um, this is something the documentary um, gets into the the this BBC documentary from 1992. Um, the CIA's predecessor OSS came in and recruited all these fascists, all these Mussolini's fascists. Instead of them being um, basically strung up or sent to a war crimes tribunal, they were recruited by the CIA's predecessor. You know, so um, the threat of democratic change. So th th what happened after the Second World War was that um, th because of, like you said, because they were so popular among the population, especially in Italy, France and Belgium and in other countries in Western Europe, um because of their leading role in fighting hitler um they knew they were popular and they knew they could win elections so what they did was they had you know they had these armed organizations but they handed in their weapons and they committed to democratic change um and you know this was something that was eventually especially in in italy known as um the euro communist turn and they became progressively more quote unquote moderate over the years um but even that kind of moderation was was not enough like for the for the cia for mi6 and they were had to be aborted by all means um the first democratic election after world war ii in italy was it, the, the communists probably would have won but it there was a massive intervention by the cia which basically poured in i don't know the exact figures but it must have been the equivalent of millions of dollars um into the christian democrats the conservative party um, and, um, you know, there was a dirty tricks campaign and so forth. And, uh, and that was the election. first ever CIA campaign. The first right. CIA campaign was to rig the Italian election with with cartoon bags of money. I mean, like, it's not a joke. Like, they actually had bags of money like Monopoly. Really? And they also pressured, they successfully got the Catholic Church to excommunicate communists in a very Catholic country. Right. So, the... You're right. It's important to contextualize Gladio in in this context of it's part of a wider operation to by by the CIA largely and and MI6. I think we know less about what MI6 did, but they were also involved um, to basically recruit the Nazis. And this is not neo Nazis. We're not talking about neo Nazis. We're talking about 1945. Talking about actual senior Nazis who worked alongside Hitler who were recruited, like you said, Reinhard Gellin became the head, the first head of West Germany's, um, you know, CIA equivalent intelligence organization, and also did operations overseas for the CIA. And it was all, to, it was all because the fight was against the USSR, you know, and to abort um, the threat of socialist change in Western Europe, whether, you know, through, through Denmark, even, though it was um, being done through democratic means. So this this is the context in which Operation Gladio was created. Yeah, I think it's it's so important to talk about that history. In, in the case of Italy, I mean, the Communist Party of Italy even governed certain areas. You know, Bologna was like a major center of the Italian communist movement. And in France, the French Communist Party after World War II was extremely popular. That's why in Western Europe after World War II, many elections were delayed. We talked about elections being rigged or just outright canceled. And it really shows to me that 
the idea that NATO has ever been about democracy is completely absurd. The, the yeah. first Cold War, like the new Cold War, the second Cold War, it's not it was, it was never about democracy. You know, there's this, there's this narrative now that we hear that the new Cold War is so-called uh, it's a, supposedly between democracy and authoritarianism. And we, we typically heard similar propaganda about the first Cold War, the idea that NATO and the U.S. and eventually later the European bloc represented a, a democratic bloc against the Soviet Union and the socialist countries. But the reality is that if you look at NATO when it was founded in 1949, among its founding members was the fascist dictatorship of Portugal, which also played an important role in Operation Gladio. So, mm -hmm. I mean... How can someone say with a straight face that operation, excuse me, that NATO is about democracy when some of its founding members include literal fascist dictatorships? Mm. It had nothing to do with democracy. It was about creating a unified military bloc to wage war against communism and specifically against the Soviet Union. And we now see NATO rebranding to focus. Well, at least before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, NATO had a, a meeting in which they declared um, Stoltenberg declared that NATO was also countering China and released this very uh, hawkish statement against China. And that was before Russia invaded. And unfortunately, you know, the the expansion of the war in Ukraine has now given NATO new life. But the reality is that it was never about democracy. And the fact that NATO was willing to support former Nazis and fascists to wage war internally against the left I think really shows that. So on that note, let's talk about what Operation Gladio is in more detail. Like I said, Gladio was the was the name, the code name given to the operation in Italy. But this is really known as the stay behind networks. And each country had their own complex names. You focused in your reporting so far in your pieces on Italy, on Belgium and kind of just an overall review of what mm. Operation Gladio is. So maybe do you want to start wherever you, what, what would be a good place to start to give people more information about this? It's, it, yeah, that's a good question. It's hard to know where to start and it was hard to know where to start with this. I, I think most people start in Italy because that's what we know the most about. Um, what happened was what we know now for a fact, uh, and again, it all sounds kind of bonkers because it was it was it was bonkers like what they did was bonkers but this is all factually proven in official parliamentary investigations that came out of Italy and Belgium especially and and other and uh, investigations in other countries um but what what is today known as operation gladio was essentially a terror network that stretched from Britain and France in the West, all the way to Turkey in the East, in Western Europe, run by the CIA, MI6, um, and the local military intelligence in each country as kind of subordinate partners to the CIA. Um, and it was a project of really secret control of, of the governments of each country to, in order to abort any kind of socialist change or even any kind of independent national change um, even conservatives, uh, social democrats and um, liberals who kind of didn't toe the CIA line were were viewed to be enemies. And what was done was um, they established a series of essentially secret armies in each country, which often directly or 
at, at arm's length recruited Nazis, former Nazis, um, neo-Nazis, you know, extreme monarchists, um, fascists, you know, Mussolini supporters. Um, there is a few cases of, as well of um, in some countries, uh, especially I think it was Austria, of um, some anti-communist social democrats being recruited into these stay-behind armies. They were secret armies which were justified as stay behind. They were stay behind networks. So the idea was to imitate what the Nazis did. Um, so in Eastern Europe, when the Soviets were defeating the Nazis um, and they were driving the Nazis out of Eastern Europe, the um, the Hitler, the, the Nazis left what, what was known as stay behind. So they were kind of sabotaged. They were, they were kind of secret armies that the idea would be that they would sabotage um, and, and they would kind of resist the so-called Soviet occupation. Uh, and, um, you know, th th they would do that. Um, of course, you know, the, the Nazi regime crumbled to a large extent, so that didn't happen very much. But at the end of the Second World War, the the, the so-called Allies knew that the next war was going to be against the Soviets. So they recruited all these former fascists and Nazis to their own stay behind, quote-unquote, stay behind um, in Western Europe because... The, the idea they tried to project was, as you said, that there would be this Soviet invasion um, of Western Europe, which even though is now sort of all admitted, we know that the, for a fact that actually the planners knew that that was all exaggerated and untrue. And, you know, and in fact, you know, even Stalin didn't want to, um, you know, invade Western Europe. Um, and 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 compromise wanted to compromise and even you know even try to join NATO um, to have kind of this uh, mutual defense and would give up the prospect of um, socialism in Germany Germany and so forth. Um, so, but the idea was they would stay behind armies, and and this is what Operation Gladio were. They were these were armed men who they they, they were secret armies. They had arms caches. Um, they had a, 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 a state-of-the-art um, radio technology, which uh, a, a radio, long-wave radio, short-wave radio called the Harpoon system, which could broadcast over distances of um, six thousand miles without the use of, you know, this before the satellite era, before the internet was really um, widely accessible. Uh, um, before, I guess, yeah, I mean, we're going back to the fifties, so it's before the internet even existed at all um this was it was really kind of uh, advanced technology they had access to they had access to um funding men and um influence in high places they had um they had as i said these secret arms caches and so there were small groups of uh, quite often former fascists nazis who could carry out armed attacks in the case of when it was needed, when it was directed to. So ostensibly, when it all came out later in the, uh, in 1990, as the Cold War was coming to an end, what they said was, oh, well, it was to protect against the threat of Soviet invasion, even though we know now that really to be a pretext. And what these armies actually did in practice, in reality, was their real target was the population. It was the country. It was it was the people of the country of each of those countries. Like it was to stop the masses having any kind of political control, any kind of political change. And what th what they did was they carried out false flag attacks. 
So, you know, this, again, this is something that's hard to report about because there's a lot of kind of um, strange theories, shall we say, on the internet about, um, you know, things being false flags, um, you know, people like Alex well, Jones and well, so it's funny forth. As, it's funny as that term used to be associated with like Alex Jones, you know, the school shooting is a false flag, but now yeah. it's, it's also become associated with US spies who are like, everything Russia's doing in Ukraine is always a false flag. Right. Exactly. So, you know, in the in the run up projection to, for what they do, it is projection. And in the run up to the this current phase of the war in Ukraine, there was a lot of media hype about how there was supposedly going to be this Russian false flag in order to justify an invasion of Ukraine and so forth. I mean, that never happened. But what has happened in history um, in the Cold War era is these Gladio organizations is the secret Nazi armies, as I've called them, um, run by the CIA at arm's length, were carried, carried out literal false flags. So what that meant was they carried out terrorist attacks on on civilian populations uh, in Italy, in Belgium, uh, and in many other countries. But Italy, Italy and Belgium was where you know I focused on my articles because I think we know the kind of the most about what happened there for sure, um, and. Yeah, they were terrorist attacks. So, you know, they were they seemed to be indiscriminate bombings or shootings attacks. And then they were then blamed on the left. So they were made to be made to look like the work of the left. And the idea was to discredit the mainstream, as we've explained, how the communist parties in those countries were mainstream. The idea was that they would then be discredited. So there was kind of two two aims. One was to discredit the left, discredit the the communist parties um, and socialists who were allied with them. And even in some cases, there were some conservatives who were willing to negotiate with them, especially Aldo Moro in um, in Italy, the former prime minister of Italy, who wanted to come to this accommodation with the communists um, and ended up dead. Um, the uh, So there was that motive the second motive was just to create a sense of chaos disorder and insecurity whereby people would turn to the state and the state would have more power and the you know the status quo would endure so you know it was a really kind of devious thing which um we know for a fact this happened because in 1990 the italian prime minister came out in parliament and said We've discovered there's this organization called Gladio. You know, it's it's a Italian word which is related to gladiators in the Roman Empire. It's the short sword they used to use because I suppose, I don't know, Mussolini and the fascists were obsessed with the Roman Empire. Probably that's where it comes from. But in Italy, it was called Operation Gladio. Each secret army in each country had its own name, and they were often obscure names. Um, but because it came out first in Italy, in a big way in 1990. Now, in 2022, we know um, the whole network is referred to as Operation Gladio. Yeah, and I should say that one of the sources that you draw on a lot for your reporting here is an incredible book that I read a few years ago that really just opened my eyes up to all this by um, Danielle Ganser called NATO's Secret Armies, Operation Gladio and Terrorism in Western Europe. And yeah. Daniel Gunser is a mainstream historian, academic, like he's not some communist investigator, like he, he's a pretty mainstream historian. And I want to highlight 
some important details from your introductory piece on Gladio um, ASAP because it just so it's so shocking and really exposes the, the the Nazism and fascism at the heart of NATO, and really like the the project of the construction of the West, right? Like this idea, this like transatlantic West, the idea that the U.S. and Canada exactly. and Western Europe are like this unified political and economic bloc, which is a very new construct, even. Mm even as recently as you know world war 1 and world war 2 that we didn't have that same idea that that europe was unified obviously not europe was clearly not unified they fought two <laughs> massive international wars in in the span of 30 years but, but anyway here's so the the nazi roots of the project of creating the west here here's this section from your article the top echelons of the west german military intelligence and political elite were riddled with senior Nazis from Hitler's regime. SS and Gestapo officer Klaus Barbie, who, if people don't know who this is, I mean, he's one of the most notorious, most well-known Nazi war criminals, responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of resistance fighters and Jewish people and Romani and disabled people. He was recruited by the U.S. military's counterintelligence corps in 1947, hidden from the war crimes tribunal, and spirited out of the country. He was then instrumental in establishing the West German part of the Gladio network, the Bund Deutscher Jugend, and its covert technical service. And they had a death list of communist and socialist politicians. And then mm. going down a little bit it's in this- the West German Gladio. And then here's another key element of this. Some of the earliest officers recruited to the new West German army and to senior positions in NATO were former Nazis. Adolf Heusinger, a major general in Hitler's army's high command, was later appointed chairman of NATO's military committee, the yeah. principal military advisor to NATO's secretary general. So again, I mean, when we say that, that Nazis, and not just like low-level Nazi grunts, we're talking about high-level Nazi officers. When yeah. we say that these high-level Nazi officers help to create NATO and run NATO, it is not hyperbole. It's not an exaggeration by any means. It's 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 absolutely true. And um, that documentary, the BBC documentary from 1992, which would never be made now, but it would certainly never be shown by the BBC. Um, and I've posted the YouTube on my Substack so people can watch that for free. Um, there's a really astonishing section of the, of the first episode of that documentary where there's an interview with um, an OSS officer or perhaps a, certainly an American military officer retired, um, obviously now looking back on um, his time in, in, in Western Europe, in Germany after the, at the end of the Second World War. And um, he, I forget his name, um, so he was either OSS, which was the predecessor of the CIA, or he was the American military counterintelligence. And he recounts to the filmmakers how he he found, discovered Klaus Barbie, where Klaus Barbie was hanging out, was, was hiding out. And he went to his superiors and, and, you know, and he said, well, I thought I'd be rewarded for finding this terrible Nazi criminal. And their, their response was, yeah, we know, like, keep quiet about it. We're hiding him. We're, you know, we're looking after him. <laughs> and, That's above and, your pay grade. Yeah. And he describes, like, talking to Klaus Barbie and Barbie showing him this photo album of him 
with Hitler, you know, hanging out with Hitler, his his mate Hitler. And uh yeah, it's um it's 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 a it's a really astonishing hidden part of our history like it's sort of hidden in plain sight like daniel ganser who, um who's an amazing uh historian that and that book as you said it's really astonishing like it's uh, you have to sort of stop reading it because if you're like you have to it's grasp. overwhelming it is overwhelming and he's a brilliant historian he's a, he's a really interesting guy swiss historian and he's got this command of so many different languages um that book is unique in the sense of or certainly in english that i know of um in the sense of um it gives an overview of every country that we know of um had some sort of gladiator involvement and he, he can wrestle with the sources you know in their in their languages and the point um Ganser makes is that um um one of the probably the main reason one of the reasons this isn't as well known as it could be is at the time that it broke in the news and it did become quite big news in in european um newspapers um and to a limited extent in britain but far less in britain um it was at least reported like i've i've, I've um linked in one of my in the belgian piece to an old guardian report about uh, the belgian gladiator which again they'd never do now um, but what Ganser's point is that um one of the reasons that it wasn't it was kind of ignored was it was just, this was 1990 when it came out when the gulf war the first gulf war was um i forget exactly when it, it broke out but um it was either happening or was just about to happen um so a lot of the world's media attention was on that rather than on the gladio revelations um but i think as well it's 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 bigger than that it's just the fact that again it's this hidden part of our history which we don't want to face up to like um uh, my colleague Ali, who you mentioned earlier, um, says that it's like, it's that internet meme that you've seen of like, hang on, are we the baddies kind of thing? And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if by we, you just mean sort of our our, uh, our states. Um, but yeah, this was, you know, it was, it was a project to abort any kind of radical change in the West by, um, by, by recruiting the Nazis. Absolutely. And I want to talk about another element of this, that even among those people who know what Operation Gladio is and how it recruited former Nazis and fascists, they might know that, you know, these these stay behind networks were involved with, you know, far right groups that carried out terrorist attacks that killed hundreds of people in Europe, especially in Italy, in the so-called years of lead, Ani de Piomo, which which it's called the years of lead. Because there was a lot of violence, terrorist attacks, this idea that it was on the verge of civil war. And, you know, the people who know what Operation Gladios tend to know that. But what they sometimes don't know is how, in addition to supporting the far right, Operation Gladio was also infiltrating the left and creating yeah. like what you could call false gangs in the left. And this is this is addressed in your other piece. Uh, your second report on Operation Gladio at your Substack: how the CIA and Italy's secret state manipulated the right and also infiltrated the left. And this this yeah. brings us to you mentioned the kidnapping and eventual killing of Aldo Moro, who was the long long serving prime minister of Italy, and the the abduction and killing of this Italian prime minister was blamed on this Maoist group or 
supposedly communist group, the Brigate Rosse, the Red Brigades. And the idea was that, you know, these so-called far left terrorists, they kidnapped him and killed him because he was not left wing enough. But in reality, if you actually look at the history, you realize that when was he kidnapped? He was kidnapped at the time when he was trying to reach out to bring in the communists to end this, this Cold War tension and even to, to actually improve relations with the Soviet Union. And that's when, conveniently, this Christian Democrat, he was not a yeah. socialist, this centrist Italian prime minister was abducted and killed. And then, of course, that was blamed on the left. And then, of course, what that does is it ratchets all of Italian politics to the right. So, so talk about, you know, you can talk about that episode with Aldo Moro, but in general, talk about what the Operation Gladio strategy was in, in Italy and what is the strategy of tension? We've heard that term. What is that? Yeah, this, this, these are all good questions. This is a, the infiltration of the left and particularly the far left or what could be called the ultra left like genuinely could be called the ultra left like you know Brit british newspapers are so um terrible that you know anyone to the left of gordon brown is considered to be the far left like jeremy corbyn's you know considered to be the far left when in actual fact he's a moderate social democrat historically speaking um but there are you know grouplets which could be fairly described as the ultra left or the far the far left um and um you know particularly after 1968 in europe and in western europe and italy um and the whole infiltration by the italian secret state of the far left is a really interesting aspect and the whole aldo moro thing it's it's an extraordinary part of this which again it's really hard to get to grips with or talk about without you know sounding like you're really getting far out there but actually we do know quite a fair bit about it so to step back a minute before i get on to that i'll address your other question first which is what is this what was the strategy of tension and what uh, what was gladio in italy so to give some concrete examples of what i was talking about earlier of the false flags so it is widely believed in italy um, it hasn't quite been definitively proven 100%, but there is, a, you know, there is masses of evidence and it is widely believed in Italy to show that, for example, the a bombing that happened in Bologna, which you mentioned earlier as this leftist, you know, communist uh, centre in Italy, stronghold, there was a bombing in 1980. Um, in Bologna, in the train station, actually in the in in the in the uh, second class waiting room of the train station, um, and I believe it was eighty five people were killed, eighty five civilians were massacred in this bombing, um, and that you know was then initially it was covered up by the Carabinieri, you know the 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 military the militarized um, police force. Um, there was kind of disinformation put out that, oh, this was done by the Red Brigades, that group that, that, that you mentioned, this kind of ultra left arms group. And there was all these kind of disinformation put out that, oh, this was the Reds sort of bombing themselves, as it were. Um, and um, but it is now widely believed that that was done and that, that by by the Italian state, by Gladio, essentially, 
And there have been several um, fascists, um, you know, uh, just neo-Nazi groups, really, in Italy. This, um, These groups, um, there have been, I believe it's about four different fascists who have been convicted of that bombing. But these groups were all well known to be essentially operated by Gladio. And um, there was one of them who became a whistleblower, um, who I mentioned in the piece, um, Vincenzo Vinciguerra, um, who um, kind of blew the lid on a lot of this stuff. And there was, an, there was a series of Italian magistrates in the 80s who kind of exposed the links of these fascist groups to the Italian secret state. You know, it wasn't known at the time publicly that it was called Gladio. That came out in 1990. But slowly over the years, these uh, magistrates, uh, one of them is now a, a senator, um, they kind of exposed all this stuff that these weren't just fascist, random fascist attacks. These groups were being operated by the Italian secret state um, and um, by, by the military intelligence and by, uh, you know, the shadowy group called the P2 Masonic Lodge, um, which, again, is really far out there. But I assure you, this was a real group. Um, and and linked to the CIA and, it, exactly, and intelligence. Exactly. Um, and so it is widely believed now in Italy that um, the Bologna bombing and many other bombings in the in the late 60s, the 70s and the 80s were carried out in one way or another by the Italian secret state who were being operated by the CIA. And the idea was this what they was they termed internally the strategy of tension, because the idea was that, you know, if there was tension in the country, the status quo could prevail. That, um, you know, if, if there's this image of, oh, the extreme left and the extreme right are fighting each other, then you need us. You know, you need um, the Christian Democrats. You need, and I don't want to say it was the Christian Democrat Party operating this. It wasn't as simple as that, but it was more about the status quo. It was more about what you could say was the deep state. It was more about the establishment. And 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 they had the backing of the CIA who wanted to see this in, in, in place. And a, a really interesting aspect of that is what you've mentioned, is the infiltration and co-optation of the ultra-left. So this, the kidnapping that you mentioned of Aldo Moro. So... Aldo Moro was, um, as you said, like he was he was the, the the president of the Christian Democrats, the conservative party of Italy that we've mentioned was, you know, wanting <laughs> the CIA wanted to keep in place by and large as, you know, as a way to keep um, the communists out. Um, and and they, they backed in the first elections, as we mentioned, with all this cash bags of cash. Um, but Aldo Moro was really this elder statesman of Italian politics. And he, he, he was the prime minister. And I think he was so many different ministers over the years. Um, but there came a point where by the time of his kidnapping in 1978, um, he was this kind of seen as a senior figure. And he, he was, he was independently minded, you know, he believed in compromise, he believed in genuinely trying to bring political forces in the country together and so that there wouldn't be these this kind of um you know violence in the country you know and he was to an extent willing to stand up to threats from american politicians you know and that he wanted to kind of have 
um, in an independent an independent state because that's really what Gladio was undermining because ultimately the instructions were coming from Langley, Virginia. Um, and so, as you said, like you look at the time that he was kidnapped, what was he trying to do? He was trying to bring together um, the political forces, the elected representatives in what it, what was called the historic compromise. So the, the Communist Party had just won in 1976 his biggest ever vote. I believe it was 34%. I got all the figures in that article. I think it was 34% of the vote. You know, they came very, very close to government. And the Christian Democrats could no longer form. They didn't have the support. They didn't have the numbers in the parliament to form the government by themselves. So they relied on a kind of negotiated um, support from the communists. Um, astonishing as that sounds, they were in not quite a coalition, but they they had this kind of confidence arrangement where you know communists would support them if they were taking certain uh, you know certain measures, certain laws, and so forth. But Aldo Moro was negotiating to take that even a step further and form an actual coalition government between the conservatives and the communists. Sounds pretty astonishing now, but that's what he was planning to do. And this is exactly the time that he was kidnapped. This is what happened. He he was he was kidnapped um, in 1978. He was dragged out of his car. His bodyguards were all murdered, and he was um, you know they, it was a kind of national trauma for Italy. You know there was, there's a I've put a photograph there of him in the article, um, and you know there's a quite famous photo of him being held by his kidnappers, the Red Brigades. Um, and you know these let he they allowed him to write letters to his loved ones and to his party political um, colleagues and so forth. Um, and you know, in all these kind of theories, I mean, I suppose what is always it kind of annoys me the 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 question that's asked of oh who benefits you know Quay Benno or whatever it is people people are always like oh who you always have to ask who benefits. Um, yeah, but that is an evidence, you know. I, I, I do think you have to ask who benefits, but that doesn't actually prove anything. However, in the case of the kidnapping of Aldo Moro, there is a, a very large degree of evidence um, that has been um, that has come out, which suggests that um, this was essentially a false flag operation that. Yes, the, the Red Brigades wasn't, I don't, it wasn't invented wholesale. It wasn't a fake group. It started off as, generally started off as this ultra left group, you know, this bunch of college students who thought the Communist Party wasn't radical enough, decided to take up arms. And they did things like they would kidnap, um, they would kidnap judges and politicians and they would make demands and so forth. And, um, you know, it, it was a real group. But by 1978, its leaders were all in prison. Um, that's that's one thing. And also, we know for a fact that by 1978, the Red Brigades was highly, highly infiltrated. It was, a, at a minimum, it was highly infiltrated by Italian secret services. Um, and... I get into detail in this in the article, and, and this is something that is testified to in that 1992 documentary. It was highly infiltrated by Italian military intelligence, um, but essentially they didn't want to shut the group down. 
So to me, my my um, argument in my article, and I think what comes out in Danielle Ganser's book, and also in Philip Whelan's book, is another book that I relied on. This book, Puppet Masters, which is more specifically about Italy, it's, an, it's another good book. Is the fact that um, the Red Brigade by 1978 was essentially being operated and used and had been co-opted by the Italian secret services as a weapon against the mainstream Communist Party. Because, you know, of course, these ultra-leftists are going to... They, they hate the Communist Party almost as much, or if, if not more so, than the, than the Christian Democrats. But they were, you know, they were targeting the Christian Democrats at exactly the time. So it, it was like it was a confluence. At minimum, it was a confluence of influence between the CIA, the ultra-left, and the Italian secret state. But there's certainly a high degree of evidence, and I lay it out in the article... That by 1978, the, Ita the Italian Red Brigade was essentially being operated. I mean, by 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 the Secret Service. I mean, just the the the, the if you read detailed accounts of of the kidnapping itself, because there was eyewitnesses of how it went down. This wasn't a bunch of college students. You know, there's an interview with the Red Brigade's founder in that documentary, and he says, "Oh, we, you know, we were astonished that this that this could happen. It was like a military operation. You know, this wasn't just a you know a bunch of crazy long-haired Maoists that had picked up a few guns, you know. Um, they assassinated, they killed, They, you know, they they killed five bodyguards. Two of them they finished off at close range, you know, shooting them in the head. And they managed to keep Moro alive, you know, and they had him kidnapped for 55 days. And um, it, was, it was a highly professional job. You know, this was something that was carried out by people who knew what they were doing. Absolutely. And talking about how what we could call the deep state. I mean, that's what it is. Like the it term the deep, deep state has become, a, has be, unfortunately become kind of co-opted by right-wing Trumpist types, but the term deep state has been used for decades by academics to refer to the Turkish deep state, the Pakistani deep state. I mean, the, the U.S. also has a deep state, which is the most powerful deep state. I mean, you can call it the national security state, the, intel the unaccountable intelligence services that are not elected. They're not they're not held to account in any way by democratic institutions. And the reality is that they use any tools before them. So they're willing to infiltrate and use far right groups, which are usually most useful to them. But they also are willing to use left, so-called left wing groups and exactly. ultra left groups. We see this now. I mean, it's with these very suspicious people calling themselves, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a socialist. I'm a communist. I'm a radical. And we need to send weapons to Ukraine to yeah. support anti-fascists in Ukraine who supposedly are anti-fascist while they're allied with Nazis. But exactly. But the narrative is that Putin is a fascist. So in order to be Antifa, you have to be against Putin, which means you have to support NATO and the CIA. Well, so we see that kind of same narrative. But yeah, I mean, I wrote an article based on a, a researcher did a FOIA request recently and found evidence that the FBI and it's in COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program, the FBI was also supporting anarchist zines, underground magazines, and using them to attack Vietnam and the Soviet Union. So like this whole idea of like the so-called tankies, right? Like uh, this word tanky has become so mainstream that it was used in the New York Times recently, right? So I think that there's when the New York Times is using a term like tanky, you know that the U.S. national security state, the U.S. government is on board with using this smear and, I and think it's a smear against anti-imperialist right. 
Yeah, Sorry? I think that's ex- I think that's exactly right. That article um, was really interesting. Those old documents showing how, um, like you said, the, the deep state will use anything they can, including anarchists. And there's this confluence of in- in- interest. And I think it wasn't just the Red Brigades. There were several other, I forget the names of them all now, but there were several other these ultra-left groups in Italy. And one of them, I think, was if not anarchist, then it was sort of anarcho-adjacent. I think it would what would have been called... Um, Autonomous. Yeah, exactly. It was one of those kind of groups. And I, I, I don't know as much about that or if it was um, as well infiltrated as uh, Red Brigades. But the Red Brigades does certainly seem to be an example of a group that was completely uh, co-opted and set up, um, and, uh, taken over and operated, later operated, by the Italian deep state. And it, yeah, exactly. It is this term, you know, it's a shame that 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 term has been kind of um, diluted by really analysis that's not really useful, but it is, it's a correct term. Like, and you, you refer to the um, Turkish deep state specifically this, yeah, what was happening in Italy is absolutely the deep state. I mean, I think there's a very powerful deep state in Britain as well. And I think, I, I know we're not going to get into it too much in this episode, but I think the Jeremy Corbyn years certainly showed us the power of the British deep state and Definitely. how it's incredibly secretive as well. I think the, the British deep state is the most successfully um, secretive deep state, um, possibly that there is, but certainly in Western Europe. Um, and in Daniel uh, Ganser's book, he gets it. He's got a whole chapter on Turkey and the Turkish Glasio, and they made use of the Grey Wolves the Grey Wolf, um, really fascist Turkish uh, organization. And in what... That have also what, been fighting in Syria, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it's all related. It's really interesting, yeah. And this is why this is still such an issue now, and maybe we can get onto that in the, at the end. But the, in, in the case of, the, of Turkey and the Turkish deep state, there was actual military coups, and that's what these gladio groups did. They, 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 they did these coups. Um, and there was only it really that so there was a, f- a few cases where certainly in Italy there was a, a, a lot of what these false flag attacks were leading towards were coups were outright military coups whereby there would be some kind of fascist takeover in the event you know there was struggle you know there was struggle and that was prevented you know those kind of coups didn't they weren't successful, but that's what these fascists and deep state plans they were working towards was, was military coups. And that was usually not successful, but in the case of Turkey, it was successful. Um, France as well. Uh, Ganser's book has got a chapter on France and he details how there was kind of soft coups in France, whereby um, they wanted to include left-wing ministers in government. And they were aborted essentially by the machinations of, um, of Gladio agents, state behind agents, um, that were coming, you know, being CIA-backed and so forth. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, a lot of what it was working towards were coups. But um, I don't want to give the, the – this is such an overwhelming topic and it just seems so powerful um, and kind of unavoidable that um, and inevitable. There's a danger of making it seem all-powerful. It wasn't. You know, they didn't get all their own way. Um, there's, there was a, a massive – in these, in a lot, in these, a lot of these countries, there was a massive working class movement that supported, you know, the trade unions, the communist parties, the socialists to a lesser extent. Although, 
a great part of the Social Democrats are, of course, incredibly anti-communist. But there was, you know, popular front governments. Um, there was there was movement towards popular fronts and things like that. And there was struggle. And these coups then weren't successful. You know, they weren't able to do everything they wanted to do. Um, and so none of these things are inevitable, I suppose, is is the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah, and I just I, I think it's really important to draw links between this history to what we've seen in recent decades. I mean, in the war on terror, the so-called war on terror in the U.S., how many of these cases of extremists claiming that they were going to do a bombing or something were being spied on by the FBI? And and how many of these cases was an FBI provocateur, the one exactly. actually encouraging them to mm. threaten to do this bombing or whatever? In the case of the first so-called ISIS attack in the United States in Garland, Texas, the FBI was physically at the scene of the crime mere feet away from the shooters. And the FBI informant who encouraged the shooting had sent text messages saying, encouraging the, the shooters to, quote, tear up Texas. So, I mean, we see this echo historically again and again, these similar tactics. And, and I think we can say that you know, since 9-11 in, in the war on terror and then with the rise of Corbin and all this, we've seen a strategy of tension again, right? Yeah. And, and we see these unelected, unaccountable, anti-democratic, deep state organizations, the national security state, the, they have manipulated politics and manipulated public opinion to create this idea first in the so-called war on terror that, you know, that, that these extremist Islamists are under your bed and they're going to blow up your school or whatever this nonsense. And then now, you know, they have this idea of Russia and China. These Chinese spies are in your universities or whatever. I mean, we really need to know this history. Something that also the Red Brigades closer to home in the United States, it reminds me of the very suspicious kidnapping of this actress, Patty Hearst, who is like this, this, uh, you know, child of a, of a millionaire oligarch. She was kidnapped by this very strange gang this like yeah. Maoist group called the Symbionese Liberation Army. And I mean, story. that's a crazy story. And like the FBI has its fingerprints all over that. Like, and then this group, it appears for a few years and then they disappear after, you know, it's like the so-called- did, Didn't, didn't they kill like one of the first, um, uh, see, uh, a black um, senior teacher in the area or educator in the area, something like that? Didn't they, didn't they murder him? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure, but I mean, there's yeah. there's so many crazy stories like about these kinds of cases, and it just shows that this idea of the strategy of tension, I, I don't think it ever really went away. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. Like my friend Louis all day was saying to me recently, like with everything that's happening in Ukraine, it feels in a way like almost the victory of Gladio because Nazism in Europe the Europe of 2022 is just being normalized in a way of like you just, I read in the times this morning. Oh, the Azov, but Ukraine's Azov regiment is defending Mariupol. They're some of the last defenders of Mariupol, <laughs> you know? And so there's just, it's just being completely normalized, you know, it, and it's, it's, uh, it's incredible. I mean, I noticed this week that um, the Twitter account of Ukraine's, National Guard has now taken to blurring out the patches on this, their soldiers' uh, arms <laughs> because a couple of months ago, it just, it just seemed like every single photo had, you know, an Azov badge or a Black Sun badge or both, you know, these Nazi emblems.
Yeah, and um, this is just this comes a few weeks after the Ukrainian National Guard shared a video of an Azov Nazi dipping bullets in pig fat to kill to kill Chechen Muslims. Here, here's the I wrote an article about this with the tweet from the Ukrainian National Guard and referring to Chechen Muslims as orcs, as like non-human monsters. Yeah. And here's the tweet from the official verified Ukrainian National Guard. Azov fighters of the National Guard greased the bullets with lard against the Kadyrov orcs. And Kadyrov is the head of Chechnya, which is part of the Russian Federation. And you can see that Twitter didn't take it down, but they put up this, this disclaimer. It says, this tweet violated Twitter rules about hateful conduct. <laughs> conduct. However, Twitter has determined that it may be in the public's interest for the tweet to remain accessible. It's like how Facebook also recently said that they, they now may, are making exceptions and you can't praise Nazis on Facebook except for Azov. You mm. can praise Ukrainian Nazis. And on Facebook, they're allowing people to call for killing Russians. So mm. they made an exception for their their opposition against violence. So you can support Ukrainian Nazis. It's it's really disturbing. And, you know, that tweet has so many layers. And I don't think we fully come to grips with it because... What they're saying, I suppose, is twofold, is that um, Russians, number one, but more importantly, perhaps Muslims, because this is, you know, Chechen Muslims, this is what this is a reference to, are inhuman orcs. Orcs, you know, being um, the monsters from Lord of the Rings, who um, are these, this um, inhuman evil, this sort of other, and... This is the really disturbing thing because what you know we're seeing i mean i think if fascism were to rise again to the extent of the hitler regime in europe the the main targeted other wouldn't be the jewish people although they may suffer as well but i think it would be muslims and i think that's that's you know we we're hopefully pretty far from that but Today in Europe, Islamophobia is so mainstream, like in Britain, in France especially. Um, you know, is the Islamophobia the level of Islamophobia is just astonishing. Like it's just incredible. Um, you know, it's if it, it, if there was an outright fascist, openly fascist government that was to come to power um in Western Europe, you could bet that the Muslims would be the main enemies the main targeted enemies and you could bet that the state of israel would be allied with it as well and so there may even be some sort of accommodation there. Uh, you know this is why we see the issue of like oh how can ukraine be a nazi regime when um zelensky is jewish is irrelevant because it's um you know even if ukrainian jews weren't targeted and discriminated against by these azov nazis and we know that they are because they are Nazis and anti-Semitism is, is never going to be far from the surface. But even if let's say they said, okay, and, and they have made some sort of noises like this, I understand where they sort of said, Oh, well, we're not, we don't discriminate against Jews anymore. The the whole point is it's not Nazism isn't unique or fascism certainly is not uniquely anti-Semitic in the sense that it needs an other you know, it needs an other that it can demonize. And as we've seen in history, um, Nazism also targeted 
the you know the Romani people. It 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 targeted political opponents. It targeted anyone who was seen as inferior in their white supremacist uh, ideology. So I mean, this to me speaks to like a really disturbing trend. And there was this weird image that um, I, I believe it was a Swedish politician. Yeah, I was on. actually just about to share this. Okay. It was Carl Bildt. I'll let you do it. I mean, because yeah, you were talking about the dehumanization of Chechens as orcs, and. This is Carl Bildt. He's the former prime minister of Sweden. He's also, I mean, a very powerful figure in NATO and the EU. He's the head of the European Council on Foreign Relations. He, he posted this tweet of this painting showing Ukrainians as like medieval knights. This is like a, it's like the Crusades all over again. And they're fighting against the evil Russian orcs who are portrayed not as humans, but as orcs. And yeah. this is, again, the former prime minister of Sweden, one of the most prominent politicians in like pro-EU, pro-NATO politicians in Europe. And, and again, this is also from Sweden, which is portrayed by some people on the left as like the great social democracy. Yeah. Yeah, atrocious. I mean, that image is, um, it, again, it strikes me as something from Lord of the Rings. Like the idea that- It strikes that these... me as something from Nazi Germany. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I mean- uh, I mean, I'm I mean, J.R. Tolkien was an arch reactionary. He called himself yeah. a monarchist. Like he was very yeah. right wing. So they're not that far from each other. Yeah, look, I mean, I got to admit, I'm a Tolkien fan. I mean, I like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a nerd. I like Lord of the Rings. Um, but he was he was a monarchist, certainly. And actually, he was even a supporter of Franco. Um, if you read his um, biography, um, but he did write this letter to the to a Nazi publisher, famously in which he, um, you know, rejected... They wanted him to declare that he was an Aryan and he wasn't Jewish so they could publish his book. <laughs> and he so he wrote them this really funny letter, basically um, slagging them off, which is quite, it's quite easy to find on the internet. Um, but, you know, there is this interpretation. I, I think, actually, um, modern neo-fascists in Italy are quite big fans of Lord of the Rings because they, they interpret it as... You know, the orcs are like, I suppose, the inferior races as they would see it. And um, the men of the West are, you know, are us civilized European Westerners, like you were saying, like this modern invention of the idea of, of uh, Western civilization and all this kind of nonsense. So, yeah, in this propaganda image, this is what we're seeing, you know, regardless of whether it's a direct reference to Lord of the Rings or not. The idea is that these are dehumanized they're not they're not um human people russians aren't human people and you know some people may argue oh well you know they are invading their country and so you can allow them a bit of leeway i i i wouldn't agree with that a but even if you would take that for the sake of argument the the point is that is going to get my my argument is that that is dehumanizing all Russians, all people who see themselves as Russian, regardless of what their attitude is to Putin, and even Ukrainians of Russian citizenship, of, of, of sorry, of Russian, um, you know, uh, background, of Russian ethnicity, heritage, yeah. Russian ethnicity, or Russian speaking, which is, you know, I understand to be as much as thirty percent of the country, you know, and, and so you know, and 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 um, this is a real kind of uh, reactionary and dangerous um, form of certainly xenophobia if not outright racism absolutely 
And we do have to start wrapping up here because I need to go. But I do want to point out an article in our mutual enemy, one of one of my least favorite media outlets, The Guardian of Blairism. <laughs> and The Guardian published an article back in 2001. And again, this is The Guardian. This is the voice of the British national security state. And it, the headline is terrorists helped by CIA to stop rise of left in Italy. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't believe anything that we talked about today about Gladio and these fascist networks backed by Western intelligence and all of this, check out this, this article published in The Guardian in 2001. About It says, U.S. intelligence services instigated and abetted right-wing terrorism in Italy during the 1970s, a former Italian Secret Service general has claimed he talked about how the former it talks about how the former head of military counterintelligence in Italy said that right wing extremists who were killed, who killed 16 people in the bombing of a Milan bank in 1969 were supported by U.S. intelligence. And he says the CIA This is an exact quote. This is he said this in court. This is legally binding testimony. The CIA followed the directives of its government wanted to uh, equate, uh, actually my, my computer is screwed up here, I can't even see it, wanted to create an Italian nationalism capable of halting what it saw as a slide to the left. And for this purpose, it may have, been, it may have made use of right-wing terrorism. I believe this is what happened in other countries as well. So, and then he added, this is again, a testimony, legally binding testimony by a, an Italian general in court. He said, quote, the impression was that the Americans would do anything to stop Italy from sliding to the left. They would do anything, including support terrorist bombings. Don't forget yeah. that, that Richard Nixon was in charge and Nixon was a very strange, a, a strange man, a very intelligent politician, but a man of rather unorthodox initiatives. So, I mean, this is, as mainstream as it gets, the Guardian yeah. of Blairism acknowledging this. It's really interesting. Like the author of that article, Philip Willen, is the author of, uh, of of this book that I mentioned earlier, Puppet Masters, which is um, another really good book. Um, he gets really into the nitty gritty of what happened in Italy. Uh, it's quite hard to follow in places because it's so detailed. And it again, it sort of blows your mind and you have to take a step back. There's a great book. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't, I mean, he, you know, I don't, he hasn't been published in The Guardian for years now. And he's just writing these straight up. Again, he's not like a communist or radical or anything like that. He's just a good journalist who's writing of what's been proven. Um, but The Guardian has just been so, The Guardian would, you know, would always have at least some, a few socialists writing for it, or just a few good journalists. But it's just been so neutralized by the British Deep State, I would say, in recent years. Um, but there's a great scene in that BBC documentary I mentioned earlier. And, and maybe, I don't know, Ben, you could bring it up on screen since we're getting towards the end. And, you know, the viewers can check out this document. It's a three-part documentary from 1992 um, by um, a great American filmmaker called um, Alan Frankovich, who actually died in mysterious circumstances. Um, but um, this... I, I, amazing like it would never be made now it, it, another film that blows your mind it's um the interviews in it there's a great interview in it with um a former cia officer um it's not 
William Colby. Uh, it's Ray S. Klein. That was his name. Ray S. Klein, former senior CIA officer. And he sort of makes a similar point to what was in that article. He says, well, you know, we may, we may have made, it's quite possible that there was some use made of right-wing groups because, of course, you know, they would fight the communists. But as long as you use them only for intelligence purposes and not politically, that's okay. <laughs> He's just saying this openly. Um, and, you know, I suppose it's interesting because the film came out in 1992 and it's like, you know, America was quite... was victorious in the cold war essentially and uh the ussr was being dismantled russia's assets were basically being stripped and i suppose they were in quite a victorious mood where they would say things more openly where uh, perhaps they wouldn't say it now so it, it's a really interesting watch to look back on absolutely i would highly recommend anyone watching or listening to this to go check out that documentary and of course to read asa win stanley's uh, Substack Palestine is still the issue. This is his article. It's called Watch the BBC's Forgotten Series on Operation Gladio. A link to his Substack below in the description, and you can find the link on YouTube. And yeah, I mean, the last thing I'll say here before we wrap up is, you know, we were talking about the British national security state and the Guardian. I mean, everything we've talked about today, these kinds of tactics still continue. And mm. Declassified UK published a pretty good story in 2019 called how the UK secret, excuse me, how the UK security services neutralized the country's leading liberal newspaper. And it talks about how after 9-11, and especially when The Guardian, it did it at one point collaborate with WikiLeaks and the British national security state went hardcore against the Guardian to, to neutralize any left-wing voices, any anti-war voices, and they succeeded royally. I mean, the Guardian today is just a complete propaganda rag. So it shows yeah. the, how these tactics continue to be used. And they might not be as explosive and violent, but there's still very heavy manipulation of, of so-called civil society. Yeah, and I think that um, I think in the you know, in decades to come, we're gonna learn a lot about the Corbyn years and the dirty tricks that were employed. I mean, hopefully we'll get into it in a future episode, Ben, but we know a lot about what happened in the Corbyn years because a lot of it, especially the Israel lobby, the stuff that was done by the Israel lobby was so out in the open. We can say a lot about it now, but I mean, my feeling is in the decades ahead, perhaps even just a few years from now, we're going to learn things that the British deep state did, which are going to be pretty gladio level stuff, I would say, certainly. I mean, and, and the, the position of the Guardian was astonishing because it was... Um, it wasn't surprising in the sense, but it, it was so vicious. Like it, the, the Guardian was the leading um, attack dog against Corbyn, whereas, you know, you think, you know, a, a moderate social Democrat would be supported by a liberal paper. Of course, the reason they did that is because even though he is a moderate social Democrat, he's anti-war. And exactly. you, you can you can call for some slight redistribution, even some nationalization. But if you challenge NATO, if you challenge the war machine, that's when you start dealing with problems. And we see, you know, people like Paul Mason are the poster boy of that. You can pretend to be a socialist, pretend to be a leftist while just supporting empire. And, you know, the the corporate media will allow a few token so-called leftist voices as long as you don't rock the boat and challenge imperialism. And we so saw we in the Corbyn years, we saw so many gladio tactics, like short of short of outright violence. 
short of short of you know bombings, shootings, and kidnappings, we saw so many gladiators tactics, including the use of the ultra left, by the way, to sort of to to say, oh, you know, Corbyn's a sellout and all this kind of stuff, and oh, you know, uh, you know, there's anti-Semitism on the left and all this kind of stuff, and I'm more left wing than you because I'm um, recognizing that, and you know, all this kind of Paul Mason nonsense. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I think there was a lot of, I think there was infiltration that was going on. I think there was a lot of disinformation that was going on. Um, I think there may have even been false flags in the sense that, um, of social media activity. You know, I, I did a, a few years ago, I did a whole, um, piece about, there was these anonymous Twitter trolls that were spewing all this genuinely anti-Semitic content. You know, for once, it was not like just pro-Israel, not not just pro, not just anti-Israel stuff or stuff that was criticizing Israel. It was genuinely anti-Semitic, saying like we need to cut Jews' throats and just horrific things like that. Um, but it was like they were made up Twitter accounts and they sort of disappeared after a short while. But they made themselves look like they put Corbyn's image on their avatar. They put like an image of kind of i don't know like a hipster leftist or something like that there it just seemed like a right winger's um version of what uh a lefty looked like so it was very clearly and i documented it in quite detail there was a whole rash of these accounts um and it just showed quite it was a false flag it was definitely not you know a, a corbyn so, pro corbyn socialist putting this stuff out there but they were strategically targeting replies of um right-wing mps who are against corbyn or you know israel lobby people so they they could then retweet this and say and they this did happen i documented it in the article sort of saying ah look at the terrible corbynistas look how racist they are and then this genuine panic being created amongst um amongst people including jewish people who you know in some instances may have been genuinely scared of this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I do think those kind of false flags certainly took place. Yeah, I mean, with social media and technology, it's become even easier for social manipulation and, and all these things we've been talking about today. But unfortunately, we have to end it there. Ace and I were talking before this episode, and I'm going to have him back soon to talk about how Corbynism was derailed and destroyed and the dirty campaign and tactics used against Corbynism. Because of course, everything that we were talking about today is very closely related. And he's been writing a lot about that. So I'll definitely have Asa back soon. Um, but anyone who's watching or listening, you should definitely go check out his sub stack. Again, it's called Palestine is still the issue. You can go to asawinstanley.substack.com dot com and subscribe there asa is there anything else you want to pitch before we conclude here asa with stanley.substack.com like and subscribe <laughs> <laughs> great well thank you asa it was a pleasure it's always fun chatting with you and yeah. i'll definitely have you back soon and for anyone watching or listening please consider supporting this show you can go to patreon.com slash multipolarista or if you don't want to support on Patreon, I also have a Substack where I repost a lot of my articles and this podcast and videos. 
So you can be on Substack or for people who are trying to get off of Patreon because of potential censorship. I also recently created a locals, which is uh, a locals is like a, it's like an alternative to Patreon and you can go to multipolarista.locals.com. So those, there's different ways to support, you know, the censorship is getting bad. We've seen friends of ours censored from PayPal. So it's good to try to find ways to back up those support networks. But you're just on every platform, everyone... Ben. You've got full spectrum dominance. <laughs> That's the idea. Not so much dominance, but, you know, uh, across the spectra. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks, Asa. I'll talk to you soon. Great to be on. Thanks for having me.